have your Bibles today, and I hope you do. When you turn with me to Acts chapter 7, every week in this series, we're learning more about the story of the early church, the first church that met in the city of Jerusalem. And last week, we read about a, a part of the story where some people in Jerusalem really did not like what a certain Christian man named Stephen uh, was teaching. They couldn't defeat him by debating with him, and so instead they went and grabbed him and dragged him in front of the Jewish Supreme Court, and they charged him with saying blasphemous things about the law of God and about the temple. Most of chapter 7 is Stephen's speech in response to those charges, and suffice it to say the religious leaders who listened to Stephen's speech really did not like what he had to say there. And in their minds, there was only one way that they could silence him. Let's pick up where we left off the story. Chapter 7, verse 54. This is the story of the first Christian martyr. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they, as, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Father, as we have your word open before us now, we pray Lord, that you who know the hearts of every one of us. Father, you know whether in this moment we need to hear a word of conviction or a word of encouragement or a word of comfort, a word of grace. Father, would you speak to each one of us now that word that we need to hear from you by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, a megachurch in Texas named Austin Stone sent out more than 100 people from their church to the mission field to seek to reach unreached people groups with the gospel. One of those that went out from their church was a young man named Ronnie Smith. Ronnie has been described as, quote, young, bright, funny, and passionate about following Jesus. He had been asked to take other leadership positions at other churches here in the States, but Ronnie and his wife knew that the Lord was calling them to share about Jesus in the dangerous city of Benghazi, Libya. At one point, when Ronnie had been on the field for a while, a pastor friend asked him, if he thought things were too dangerous in Libya for him to remain there. And Ronnie replied, quote, There is literally no place on earth that we would rather be. Nowhere. In the book, All Authority, here's how Ronnie's pastor 
friend described what happened soon after that conversation. A black Jeep circled Ronnie several times as he was on his daily jog in his neighborhood in Benghazi, Libya. The two Libyans in the Jeep pulled up to a car stopped nearby. Is that the American? They asked. The man smoking and waiting in the car said, yes, he lives here and he is a good man. Ronnie had lived in Benghazi for nearly a year teaching science to Libyan high school students. The black Jeep circled back to Ronnie. A quick word was exchanged, and then the Libyan men emptied six bullets into Ronnie's chest, killing him instantly. Ronnie's wife and two-year-old son had returned two weeks before to the U.S. for their Christmas holiday. Ronnie died on December 5, 2013, one week before he was to join them. Here's the question that I want to ask you to think about today as we study the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Are you willing to die for Jesus? It's an important question because as Ronnie's story shows us, while Stephen was the first Christian martyr, he was far from the last. And while we are not told to seek after martyrdom, we are told to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter what the cost is, even if it costs us our lives. As we think about that question, there's so much we can learn from Stephen. Because the first man who died for Jesus lived an awful lot like Jesus. He reminds us of Jesus in a number of ways. Notice with me that the first man to die for Jesus, first of all, spoke boldly and fearlessly about Jesus. Verse 54 starts out with the words, when they heard these things, the what things. I believe it's a reference to Stephen's entire speech that takes up the rest of chapter 7. And I think the implication is that he would have kept speaking longer, but they cut him off because they didn't want to listen to any more. They were so angry with him. I won't repeat everything that we talked about last week, but Stephen's speech was basically a summary of the entire Old Testament. He mentions several of the major characters of the Old Testament. He talks about Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon, but his main point through the whole speech is how time and time again God's people rejected the very servants that God sent to deliver them. And then in verse 52, the climax of Stephen's speech is when he says that they did it again with Jesus. That the righteous one came, God's very son, the Messiah, and they rejected him just as their fathers had rejected the prophets who came before them. Stephen refers to his listeners as stiff-necked, as stubborn. He says that they always resisted what the Holy Spirit wanted to do. Now, whatever somebody might think about Stephen's speech, one thing that it wasn't was timid. And this was a bold, fearless speech about Jesus. And that's, that's a theme that we keep seeing show up over and over again in the book of Acts, that first the apostles and now men outside the group of the apostles, like this man Stephen, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And because they were, they were not afraid. That They spoke whatever God told them to say, even if consequences came from it. There's a great need today for more Christians who will boldly and fearlessly speak about Jesus 
even in the middle of a culture that increasingly does not want to hear what the church has to say. There's no question that Stephen's audience didn't want to hear what Stephen had to say. Look at verse 54 again. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. As one person put it, when you're preaching and the congregation all starts to frown at you, that's a bad sign. But when they all start to literally gnarl and gnash their teeth at you, then you're in big trouble. Thankfully, I don't hear anybody doing that quite yet, but that's what happened to Stephen. In essence, Stephen's speech signed his own death certificate. His hearers were enraged. They would pounce on Stephen in just a moment like a pack of hungry, rabid dogs. But before they did, Stephen said something else that made them even angrier. Look at verse 55 and 56. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Here's another thing to notice about this first man who died for Jesus. He was enthralled by the glory of Jesus. I love how verse 55 starts out and reminds us that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. I think that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is, is painting a contrast for us between Stephen and this angry mob. These religious leaders that the rest of Jerusalem looked at and saw as so holy, and yet they weren't holy at all. They didn't have the Holy Spirit filling them. In fact, they were resisting the Holy Spirit. They were resisting this man who was full of the Holy Spirit and who was right with God and who was about to get a glimpse of the glory of God. Because God, as it were, reached out his hands and, and drew back the curtains of heaven and allowed Stephen a glimpse of the throne room. There's a few others in the Bible who have had such an experience. Isaiah, Ezekiel, later Paul and John in the book of Revelation. But here it's Stephen, who not only saw heaven, but was the very first one to see the glorified Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible describes Jesus at the right hand of the Father many times. It's a place of honor. It's a place of authority and rule. But usually when the Bible talks about Jesus being at God's right hand, it says that Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. Hebrews 10.12 is an example. It says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God after he had finished the work of redemption at the cross. The reason why Jesus sat down is because there's no more work to do. The work is finished. There's nothing that we need to do to add to it. But here, Jesus is not seen as sitting, but he's seen as standing. Why did Jesus stand up? Well, Tony Marita points out a few reasons, and I agree with both of these that he shares. First of all, he stood up to honor Stephen. You know, there's a tradition that when a doctoral student earns their Ph.D., that all of the professors at the school stand up when the degree is awarded. It's a show of honor because they understand how much work and effort was required on the part of that student to earn that degree. I think that's what's going on here. Jesus is standing up to honor his servant. He's saying to all of heaven and earth, watch what my servant Stephen is doing right now. Another reason I think he stood up was to welcome Stephen home. 
You know, when a mom or a dad has a child that's away, maybe away at college for a semester, you haven't seen them in months, and you hear the car pull up in the driveway, you don't sit there in the recliner, you stand up. You come to the door. You welcome them home. That's what Jesus is doing. He knows that in just a moment, his servant will be in his presence. And he's standing up to welcome them. How beautiful is it that before the first rock is even thrown, the Lord is already standing up for Stephen. Verse 55 says that Stephen was gazing intently into heaven when God allowed him to have this sneak peek of heaven. So what does that mean for us? What's the application for us? Does that mean that we need to go outside every day and look up at the clouds and hope that one day God will part the clouds so that we can have a same glimpse of heaven that Stephen had? I, I don't think so. It's unlikely that the Lord will give us a glimpse of heaven like that, but it is a good question. What are you and I gazing intently at? What do you wake up every day hoping to see? Because even if we can't see heaven itself, the Bible does say that we can see the glory of God around us and in us. As we walk with the Lord, as we talk with the Lord, as we grow closer to the Lord, we can see his glory. We can see his glory at work in us. We can see his glory when we open his word, whether it's alone or together with the church family. We can see his glory when we're together in worship. We can see his glory when we look around us in creation. We can see his glory when we see God at work in the lives of other people. I think that's the kind of life God wants us to live, a life where we wake up every day ready to see more of the glory of God where we are so enthralled by his glory that we are not distracted by the fainter, lesser glories of this world around us. Because here's the truth, a Christian who is captivated by God's glory will not be easily distracted by the world's glitter. Stephen wasn't distracted by anything. His eyes were transfixed on heaven and the glory of God. Now, he probably would not have made them angrier if he had kept that vision to himself, but he could not help himself. And so he shouts out in verse 56, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen saying that infuriated them so much because a few years earlier, this same high priest and these same religious leaders had heard someone else say something very similar to that. Matthew tells us what happened. Matthew chapter 26, look at these verses. Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus was quoting from Daniel chapter 7, which was a prophecy about the Son of Man, which is a name for the Messiah. He was telling them that one day you're going to see me at the right hand of the Father coming in glory. And now here is Stephen saying that that has happened. That Jesus, the Son of Man, is there at the right hand of the Father, just like he said he would be. And so now these religious leaders had a choice to make. They would either admit that they were wrong when they killed Jesus, which they were not going to do, or they would be consistent and kill Stephen too. 
which is what they did. Verse 57 and 58 describes the stoning itself. It says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Now, if, if shrieking and putting your fingers in your ears sounds like a childish thing to you, it also sounds like a childish thing to me. And this is behavior you would expect from a three-year-old when they don't want to listen to something. But these men believed that this was their religious obligation to keep words that they considered to be blasphemous out of their ears. They didn't want to hear them. Of course, we know that what they were rejecting, what they were closing their ears to, was not blasphemous at all. It was the truth. And it needed to not only enter their ears, but it needed to enter their hearts. But they would not allow it. And so the text says they ran at Stephen. The word ran there is used in Matthew 8 to describe a herd of demon-possessed pigs running over a cliff. I think that's a fitting image for what happened here because these men who ran at Stephen ran at him with a satanic, murderous intent in their hearts. They tried to keep some semblance of legality and how they did this by taking him outside the city before they killed him and allowing the witnesses to go first. But the way the story reads sounds a lot more like a mob lynching than it does a fair trial. And as the stones were raining down on Stephen's head, we don't know everything that he said that day, but we do know two things he said, and both of them are amazing. The first is there in verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Here's the third thing to notice about Stephen. This first man to die for Jesus trusted Jesus with everything. Jewish tradition describes the way of stoning. They would take someone outside the city gates. The first witness who accused the man would push him down into a pit twice the length of a man, so 10 to 12 feet down. The second witness would then take a large stone and drop it on the chest of the man. And if that did not kill him, then everyone else would take a turn in throwing stones at him until he died. It's hard to say whether that exact protocol was followed here. Because again, this has the appearance of more of a free-for-all from the beginning. But, but imagine for a moment if you were Stephen. Imagine if you were there in that pit and you were being hit in the head by stone after stone and blood is streaming down your face and you know the end is near. What would you say? What, what would you shout out in that moment? I think I might think about yelling, stop. Why are you doing this? Not that that would have helped, but that seems like something I might have said. Perhaps some people would have yelled out curses. Perhaps some would have reached around them in the pit to see if they could find a stone to throw back at the people who were throwing at them while they still had the strength to do so. But that's not what Stephen does. Stephen doesn't even talk to the crowd at all. He ignores them. He, he speaks to Jesus and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You might remember that Jesus said something very similar to that. With his final words on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The only difference is that here Stephen prays to Jesus rather than to the Father. And that is a strong statement about what the early church believed about Jesus. That he was and is fully God. 
Stephen could pray to the Son just as well as he could pray to the Father because as Jesus said, I and the Father are one. But again, notice everything that Stephen is not doing here. He's not fighting back. He's, he's not resisting. He's not angry. He's not lashing out. Instead, he's looking up. He's thinking about the Lord. And at the moment of his death, he knows in his heart that his soul is secure eternally with Jesus. In the final moments of his life, Stephen knew he could trust his soul to God. Christian, God wants us to trust Jesus with everything in our life right now. If you're married, he wants you to trust him with your marriage. He wants you to trust him with your children. In the middle of this pandemic, he wants you to trust him with your health. He wants him to tr- you to trust him with the health of your family. He wants to, you to trust him with your bank account. He wants you to trust him with your job or your business. He wants you to trust him with your future. He wants you to trust him with every decision that you make. He wants you to trust him with your eternity. He wants you to trust him with everything in your life. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, he wants you to trust him with your life today. He wants you to say to him, Lord Jesus, Receive my life. I trust you with it. Come into my life and change me and forgive me because I need what Stephen had. You know, another way that Stephen should remind us of Jesus is the way Stephen forgave others like Jesus. Second thing Stephen said, the last thing Stephen said is there at the end of verse 60. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. I think it's possible, church, that we can become so familiar with this story that we are no longer amazed by it. I mean, when you read that, do not hold this sin against them. I mean, seriously. Can you imagine saying that in that moment when stones are literally being thrown at your head one after the next? This is a remarkable thing, and these words flow out of a remarkable heart. Now, where did Stephen get this kind of heart? Well, we know the answer. He got it from Jesus. Jesus, who said the same thing about those who were killing him when he hung on the cross. Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I suppose maybe a cynical person might say, well, okay, well, he, he, he was just copying Jesus. But he knew that Jesus said that, so he just wanted to say something similar. Uh, no. <laughs> this is not something that you can manufacture. Right? This is not a time in your life where you're going to have the wherewithal to play a part in a play. This is a time in your life when you're moments away from death, when who you really are on the inside is going to come out. And what flowed out of this man who was changed by the grace of God, the last thing that flowed out of his heart before his heart stopped was grace. What is flowing out of your heart? Is it grace? Is it forgiveness? Or is it anger? Is it bitterness? Is it hatred? The first man who died for Jesus forgave people like Jesus. Do I do that? Do you do that? 
I don't know, friend, who has hurt you or who has wronged you or what they have done to you, and I'm not minimizing that in any way, but they have not yet stoned you to death. The Lord would have us who have been changed by his grace be a people who show grace. And so, friend, if there's someone in your life that you need to forgive, I would plead with you to forgive. To give that to the Lord. And you never know how the Lord might use your forgiveness of that person to bring them or someone else to the Lord who sees it. That's actually what happened here. Here's the last way that Stephen's life points us to Christ. The first man to die for Jesus left the world an unforgettable picture of Jesus. The very last phrase of verse 60 tells us of Stephen's last breath. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Falling asleep is a Christian way to speak of death. And it's actually a beautiful expression of what death is for the believer because the Bible teaches that there is no delay at all between our death in this life and the beginning of eternal life in the next. Rather, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present, immediately present with the Lord. It's like going to sleep. We close our eyes and go to sleep in this life and we wake up to the start of a new day with Jesus. So it was with Stephen. And yet what an unforgettable picture of Jesus, Stephen's life in this world has left us. You can't read this story without it impacting you, but but you and I are just reading it. Imagine if you had been there that day watching it happen. Imagine if you had been a part of the story. Well, there was one man who was there. It's easy to miss, but at the end of verse 58, one of the most important characters in the Bible makes his first appearance. The end of verse 58 says, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was his Hebrew family name, but he is better known to history by his Roman name, which is Paul. Paul has been called the greatest missionary, the greatest church planter, even indeed the greatest Christian who has ever lived. But when he first appears in the Bible, he is a coat rack for the wrong team. He is holding the coats of those who are throwing stones at Stephen. And he wasn't an innocent bystander in this either. It says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was consenting to his death. The word consent means to agree with it. It means that he signed off on it. He was a part of it. And then in the pages that follow, he becomes the ringleader of the persecution against the early church. Verse 3 of chapter 8 says he was literally wreaking havoc on the church. That he was traveling to faraway cities in order to drag men and women away to jail who were followers of this man Christ. And he was doing that right up until the time that he met Jesus face to face. And Jesus changed his life. You remember that Stephen prayed and asked God to forgive those who had a part in killing him? The Apostle Paul is the answer to Stephen's prayer. 
God's answer was far beyond anything Stephen could have imagined because through Paul's life, especially through his spirit-inspired writings that we find in the New Testament, millions of people have come to know Jesus, including, I'm sure, many of you in this room. You know, I don't think Paul ever forgot this day. I agree with what W.A. Criswell said. He said, every time Saul got quiet, every time he was alone with just his soul and God, he relived that day in which he presided over the execution of Stephen. Saul never saw a man die like that man died, with the light of heaven on his face. He never heard a man pray like that man prayed, asking God to forgive those who were stoning him to death. I, I agree with Criswell. I think this day was etched in Paul's mind until the day he died. In fact, I know it was because in Acts 22, he talks about it. It's a part of his salvation story. About 30 years later, Paul would be martyred himself for Christ just outside of the city of Rome. And I can't help but think that when the executioner's sword was about to come down on Paul's neck, that his mind did not flash back to this day. When he saw Stephen take those stones to his face, and his face was shining. Stephen left an unforgettable legacy, an unforgettable picture of Jesus. Friend, don't you want to live that kind of life? Don't, don't you want to live the kind of life that leaves a legacy? The kind of life that people can't quite explain, that just doesn't make sense. The kind of life that's, that, that challenges the way they think because it's so different, it's so otherworldly, it's so heavenly that it gives them a taste of Jesus. And who knows how one day God might use that legacy that you leave behind or I leave behind. Someone might come to know Christ even after we are gone, like Paul did after Stephen was gone. Earlier, I shared the story of Ronnie Smith, who was martyred for his faith just seven years ago. And now let me go in the other direction and, and share a story that's more than 1,800 years older than that one. This man's name was Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of the church in Smyrna in the second century A.D. Polycarp was martyred during the persecutions against the Christians that took place under Marcus Aurelius. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, Polycarp heard that the officials were seeking his life and he escaped for a time until he was discovered by a child. Once he was arrested, he asked the guards for time to pray, and he prayed for an hour, and he prayed with such fervency that it is written that the guards repented that they had even been instrumental in capturing him. Eventually, they tied Polycarp to the stake and burned him. Before they did so, they gave him an opportunity to recant of his faith in Christ. Polycarp refused. And he said these famous words, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. 
Friend, let me remind you of the question that I asked at the beginning. Are you willing to die for Jesus? Like Polycarp did. Like Stephen did. Like Paul did. Like Ronnie Smith did. And like thousands and thousands of others have over the 2,000 year history of the church. Are you willing to die for Jesus like they did? You know, this week I've thought about that question even for myself. I don't know where the Lord might take me in the years to come. I don't know if he'll call me and my family to a place like the one Ronnie Smith went, where my life could be threatened because of my faith in the Lord. And if in that moment of testing, I was given an opportunity to recant, like Polycarp was, what would I do? And church, I'd like to say that I would gladly die for my Savior who died for me, and I believe I would. But you know, it's hard to know really what you would do until you're in that moment, isn't it? Remember how confident Peter was the night before Jesus went to the cross? He told the Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. We know what happened. Before the night was over, the disciples ran away, and Peter denied three times that he even knew Jesus' name. He wasn't ready yet. He would be years later when the time came. Church history tells us that Peter was martyred for his faith and he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be killed in the same way as the Lord. Maybe the question, are you willing to die for Jesus, isn't the best question because at this precise moment, That's not the test that we are facing. Maybe right now, at this moment, this is a better question. Are you willing to live for Jesus? Because, you know, before Stephen died for Jesus, he lived for Jesus. He was willing to die for Jesus when push came to shove because he lived for Jesus and he lived with Jesus until then. He spoke boldly about Jesus. He was enthralled by the glory of Jesus He trusted Jesus with everything in his life. He forgave people like Jesus had forgiven him. And because he did, when the time came, he left the world an unforgettable picture of Jesus. And church, by God's grace, let's do that. Let's be willing to die for Jesus if he asks us to. But for now, let's live for the one who already died for us. Let's pray and ask God to give us the grace to do so. Father, we stand in need of your grace. Father, our heart's desire is to live lives that are worthy of the name of Christ. Father, would you help us to do that like Stephen did? Father, would you help us to speak boldly? Father, would you help us to live boldly? Help us, God, to be enthralled by your glory and not by the glitter of this world.
Father, help us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Help us to trust you with everything in our life, every part of our life. And God, if in your will one day following you means that we stand in front of an angry mob with stones in their hands or swords or guns. Father, may you give us the grace to stand strong in our faith till the very end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.